and friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your fourth and fifth week host, Stu Levitan. On today's show, we'll learn about the history of the brewing company that is synonymous with Madison, the Fowerback Brewing Company, with our guest, Peter Fowerback, the namesake and great-great-grandson of the company founder and author of the lavishly illustrated new book, Fowerback Brewing Company, Madison, Wisconsin, 1848-1967, recently named the Book Very of the good. Year by the American Breweriana Association. The elder Peter Fowerback was born in Bavaria in 1830, emigrated to the United States in 1850, worked in and ran breweries in upstate New York and the young Wisconsin towns of Portage and New Lisbon. He made it to Madison in 1868 to lease the Sprecher Brewery at Blount and Williamson Streets. By 1880, it was the Fowerback Brewing Company, a mainstay of Madison life until it closed July 1st, 1966. The brewery was torn down December 13th, 1967, and the site later developed by David and Lee Mollenhoff as the Fowerback Condominium. Among Peter's descendants with an important role in the company's history, his grandson, Carl H., general manager from Prohibition until 1960, and Carl H.'s son, Carl P., master brewer from 1957 until the final keg nine years later. Although our Peter Fireback was only 14 when the brewery closed, he is uniquely qualified to tell the Fireback story. After all, Carl H. was his grandfather, Carl P. his father. And it was his great uncle, Dr. Lewis, who made and implemented the decision to close the brewery. No wonder that he has become the unofficial company historian. Peter Fowerback has degrees in physics and math from St. Olaf College in Minnesota and a master's degree in industrial engineering from the University of Wisconsin. Naturally, with an academic background like that, he spent his career as a healthcare consultant with a particular focus in hospital relocation. He lives near Spring Harbor on Masson's West Side with his wife, Maggie Zoller. It is a pleasure to welcome Peter Fowerback to Madison Bookbeat. Thank you, Stu. It's very nice to meet you. Well, thank you for being here and congratulations on the award and on for publishing such a beautiful book. To say it is lavishly illustrated is an understatement. What did it take to put it all together? Well, um, it, there's really two answers. I started writing a year ago and it came out uh, in April this year, but Honestly, I had a website since 2004, and of course, all the archives from my family. So that's what it took to put it together. It was just a, a decision of uh, somebody said, uh, bring the beer back, and we did that. And then I sat around for a while, and I said, I need to write at least one book for my kids. <laughs> and it turned out I've, I've sent out 400 already. But what about the actual choosing of the illustrations and, and laying the book out and and the writing, what, what, was, what was involved in, in that aspect of it? Well, I've written over 200 study reports for hospitals. So basically, I just did a 12-chapter outline and said, okay, where do I have rabbit holes to fill in? Where do I have good information? Where's their contextual information about wars that were going on or what was happening in the country? So that laid out the sequence. And um, uh, basically, I have a really extensive photo collection. A lot of them are eight by tens, and they're the same photos that Lisa Marine, the archives director at the State Historical, has over there. And so that was a really good start. Um, then it, when it came to putting the houses uh, in a chapter and the labels in another chapter, that was pretty straightforward. You had the existing archives of all those labels because there are yeah. a lot of beer. There are a lot of beer labels represented. Well, to be honest, uh, two or three people helped me with stuff I hadn't seen before. And their uh, contributors are mentioned in the book. Did you learn anything new about the company or your extended family in researching and writing the book? Yes, and uh, for anybody that wants to write a family history, so this is 100 years of one family, uh, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to talk to people who will tell you stories that are too good not to print. And yes, there was a, a lot of fun stuff we learned. Such as? Um, 
Well, two stories that are featured in the book. One is the connection of the brewery with the Red Dot Potato Chip Company. And that goes way up to Phillips, Wisconsin in a bar where there weren't potato chips at that time. It was uh, the bar food was like pig's feet and, and eggs and other things in vinegar, right? So this is the advent of potato chips in the bar, the relationship of Red Dot and Fauerbach. It was the best food pairing. Turns out the owner, a guy named Meyer, uh, had a potato research field up in that area. And he was in the bar and somebody said, you need to bring some Fauerbach beer up here. And, uh, and Fred Meyer said, yeah, and I've got the chips for you and you will not believe how well your business will do. So that was one of the stories. Um, another one was uh, the, um, I guess, arguments between Pabst Brewing and Fauerbach on one particular label. It had a blue banner and we typed blue label on our uh, label and they had, of course, blue ribbon. Well, over three years, both breweries managed to stay out of court and just agreed to change their labels three years later. That was pretty nice because I think my grandpa said, we're small. We're going to go under if you sue us. You know, yes. so they worked it out. I'm good for them. I mentioned your great, great grandfather arrived in Madison in 1868. Tell us about his life before that, both growing up in Bavaria and after he came to America in 1850. Well, the region they came from was about 60 kilometers from Frankfurt, and it's really a farming and wine area. But, uh, you know, many of the um, kids who grew up went an hour away to work in a brewery uh, to learn their skill. Uh, so when Germany got in trouble for, um, you know, the lack of land and the lack of good economy at the time, Germans were pushed out of Germany and they were pulled to America. America was growing in their industrial revolution. And so uh, they said, well, let's, let's go to America and we'll, we'll take two or three other good friends who are brewers and uh, we'll hook up with a brewer that's already running in Utica, New York, Charles Bierbauer. And uh, that's how he got started. And then talk about his, his various permutations and stays in Utica and then Portage in New Lisbon before he got to Madison? Yeah, well, I think when they, you know, if you think about Brooklyn, they were getting 10,000 new people a week from Europe. And so Brooklyn, that big port, just imagine the flow of people. Well, they had to look for work at first. They uh, worked like blacksmiths in a, a carriage shop. And then they made the connection with Charles Bierbauer up in Utica, just up the Erie Canal, the Hudson River, actually, uh, and worked there for a few years, learned the trade. Um, and then uh, Peter Bierbauer, who was married to Peter Fauerbach's sister, and Peter moved to Portage. And from there, they opened, uh, they followed a guy named Hausman up to New Lisbon, which was a small little lumbering town. Uh, northwest of Portage, and uh, it was going to grow to 2,500 because the railroad was going to go through all the way to Minneapolis. This is like before, this is Civil War, before the railroads were really uh, extensive in the state. So that's how that part of the path happened. And then uh, Peter got out of the brewery partnership in 1962. He also taught German in the basement of his home, uh, or, sorry, he taught, I think he taught English to German-speaking folks. And then he also owned a, um, oh, like a roadhouse, um, which was quite common for a lot of brewers. They, they had accommodations for people too. But anyway, then uh, Hausman kind of led the way to Madison and they ended up uh, splitting, Bierbauer that is. He stayed in New Lisbon. Peter came to Madison and uh, after a short time in 1860 Sprecher died and Hausman leased the place for a while and then it became available for Peter. Hausman had decided to go bigger and bought the um, Capital Steam Brewery on State Street in Gorham where a guy named uh, Edward Voigt owned that before he went to to Michigan. So so for you know, Hausman was really the leader in getting these cellars going and these small breweries going. And Fauerbach uh, 
kind of followed in his footsteps. It was all under the watchful eye of a guy named um, Carl Hartle in Portage. And he was the oldest of the four, knew uh, and, and related, you'll see in the book, that all these families were kind of married in some way or another uh, to um, a sibling. And so Hartle, you know, basically funded a few things and made sure these guys were going to be successful. And that's who your grandfather was named after. Yes, Carl Hartle. Now, Hausman also have the brewery and malt house on Sherman Avenue at the Tenney Locks? Yes, uh, that's where their cellars were. So the cellars were uh, close to the lakeshore for cooling purposes. And there's a picture in the book of how they built those. It was kind of uh, an arched couple layers of brick with sod over the top. Not like the Milwaukee cellars where they've got such a big cliff on the edge of the lake. Um, but the malt house um, that Rotterman owned initially was taken over by Hausman. And so I'm not exactly sure what kind of brewery functions went on in there, but certainly the cellars were a part of Hausman. Peter Feuerbach, obviously a man of ambition and drive, died in 1886 at only 56. What do you know about the nature of his death? Uh, it was a stomach problem. I think they they wouldn't exactly call it um, the tuberculosis kind of death um, consumption, yeah. but they it probably was a cancer of the stomach or esophagus. Yeah. When he died, your great great grandmother Maria became the proprietress and ran the business with her with most of her six sons. How were women in the brewery business treated in the late 1880s? Well, the family uh, was held in high regard. Uh, the women commanded a, a lot of respect. I think they were public servants, first of all. And of course, training five boys or six boys to be good citizens was was her main goal and she did a good job. And if you read the paper accounts, we don't have a picture of her, unfortunately. She was uh, a really good businesswoman too. The oldest child at that time was 34. Why did she run it for, for just those three or four years? In 91, which was the fifth year after Peter's death, um, they incorporated and decided they needed to get much bigger. Still a family business. Uh, they capitalized something less than $25,000 and set about, uh, about a 15-year plan of expanding capacity, building different, you know, that was the end of cutting ice out of the lake because they could use uh, generators with ammonia compressors to make ice and keep it in a part of the, the brewery right on Williamson Street. Yeah. In 1870, Farback Brewery was the smallest of the three large breweries in Madison. When and how did it become the biggest? Well, Prohibition really put two of the three of the brewers out. Bruckheimer was right on King Street, and uh, he turned into a seed seller merchant um, in 1919. And then uh, Hausman had a had a fire in their um, power generation plant in 1923 that knocked them out. So that's really at the beginning of prohibition. Fauerbach uh, at that time was just selling uh, basically non-alcoholic beverages and selling properties to survive through the um, 13 years. Uh, two thirds of the way through that, they went into the soft drink business. And so that helped them at the end of prohibition. So they became the biggest because their competitors failed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That uh, Houseman fire of 1923 was almost a turning point in the city, in the history of Madison, because they almost located the new city. They're going to build a city hall on part of the land where the Houseman Brewery had been, which would be very, a very bad idea if you think about travel and stuff. We're talking with Peter Fauerbach. His book is Fauerbach Brewing Company, Madison, Wisconsin, 1848 to 1967. Most, but not all of the sons in that second generation 
were involved in the business, was there pressure on the male descendants to be brewers? Uh, interesting question. Um, I know that Philip was in the insurance business. He was the uh, third oldest child of six, and he was in Milwaukee. And then there was another one who was a, a kind of a feeble character, but turned out to be the best violinist in the country, they said, and played at the Capitol. But he died young. So the remaining four uh, were needed in the brewery to make the 15-year expansion work. Do we have any idea if they really enjoyed being in the brewery business, or was it just the obligation of the, of the sons to, to do that? I think it was a great career, hard work, but fun. And uh, if you read about the German cultural stuff that's in the book, you'd say, oh, yeah, these guys had a fair amount of fun, whether it was ice boating or uh, turkey shoots over at Schoetzen Park or um, a lot of outdoor activities. And they were highly regarded people. Um, folks who worked there were pretty proud. I mentioned the status in 1870. Uh, in 1870, that was also when the family got into ice boating and became very prominent and successful. Why has ice boating been such a large part of the family legacy? Well, the brewery was on the lake. And uh, when the project started, the house was right there on at 653 Williamson, right in the brewery property. So they had to move out and they moved into the Marquette neighborhood in a number of homes, several of which were on the water. And so, you know, whether it was sailing um, in the summer or ice sailing in the winter, that was how you had fun. I've always found that to be a, a somewhat frightening pastime, you know, <laughs> zipping along the lakes at what, 30, 40 uh, miles an hour, even faster? Yeah. Uh, and those, uh, bigger boats, there's a lot of uh, speculation that some of them went over 100 on a straight run, but uh, we've got the Mary B, as you probably are aware, uh, real famous ice boat, they say clocked over 100. And from everything we can tell, with three or, three or four people riding in the basket on the back of that thing, it's pretty frightening. <laughs> did you, do you partake? Do you participate? I did. I have an eye issue right now, uh, but I have a renegade and I'm on the board for the Ice Boat Foundation. And um, so, yeah, I, I participated. I was the racing officer for five years until I couldn't see a mile anymore, which is the spread between the two marks you have to go around uh, just to be safe. They they said, Peter, it's a good thing if you get off the ice. <laughs> put, put you in an administrative capacity. At the end, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk about the expansion of 1904. I don't know how many breweries are designed by such a prominent and distinguished architectural <laughs> firm as Lou Porter and Alan Darst Conover, but yours was. Yes. Uh, if you There's a, a guy named Rich Wagner who captures historic brewery equipment and buildings. And it's a very common design, the castle-like brick structure. Uh, I'm sure Porter went looking for ideas. Well, it's, it's a gorgeous building. And, and Alan Darst Conover was the only architect whom Frank Lloyd Wright respected. Really? Wright, Wright was an apprentice when Conover was building the um, new science hall in the 1880s. And there, there's, right. a, there's a famous story of Conover sending right up on the roof to like, you know, fix some scaffolding or move some <laughs> hooks or something on some snowy December day. And we almost lost the world's, the, the self-proclaimed <laughs> world's greatest architect. Well, uh, I, I would just add that uh, they were all local contractors, whether it was somebody putting um, plaster on a wall or bricklayers or architects, pretty much local. Outside is very solid and, and well-designed with interesting touches, but the inside is so well-appointed. Can you take us on a tour through the building? Yes. Um, for the public, they would enter on Williamson and Blount, right on the... Um, where the two streets intersect. And so the, the big doors to the tavern were 
on an angle going in and it was tile floors and uh, the Fauerbach logo was a badge which really originally was a harp uh, for their affinity to music from from Germany and uh, in the bar room they had uh, a beautiful Bergen Brunswick quarter sawn oak bar and back bar and stairs going up to the second floor that were the place to be for a beer on Saturday. Um, there was a multicolored star out front for a number of years that when that was lit, people knew the bar was open. And they, if they were traveling on Willie Street, they could stop in for a, a brew. But if you've ever heard the term, uh, there's no free lunch, the bar, other bars around town didn't like that too much that the brewers were selling beer on or direct, you know, from the brewery. So they stopped doing that for the most part. Um, inside was a tile floor with um, a maze pattern, which is like a reverse swastika symbol. And they had five or six uh, cigar spittoons that were went down five feet into the floor and were flushed out automatically. So the bartender didn't need to mess with them. Pretty deluxe. And stained glass windows. Yeah, a couple stained glass windows that uh, were wonderful. And then also a 10 by 16 mural in the business office directly behind the back bar. There was a couple pass-through windows. Uh, the way you'd get there, the beer was um, checks and balances with four people involved, you know, for the legalities. But in the business office ceiling, it was, uh, I actually discovered who painted that. Um, there's a 1957 article on the, the green sheet and my father's pictured behind the bar. And he says, a man named Snyder. And the way they spelled it was uh, not the way it was actually uh, spelled. But I did discover that he worked for the American Panorama Company out of Milwaukee. And he was a big mural painter and got a picture of him too. So that was fun. Inside the rest of the brewery was, um, people always ask me, couldn't they have saved that building? Well, not really. It was full of cement and rebar and not pretty like the bar room. Um, uh, certainly, it was kept painted white for the most part in the equipment spaces. But, um, you know, just kind of like a castle, thick walls, tall ceilings. Was any of that beautiful bar room preserved and reused? Yeah, uh, I managed to get a hold of it. The um, There was a guy named Williamson, oddly enough, who uh, opened the Wagon Wheel Resort down in Rockton, Illinois, just an uh, hour south. And I heard there was going to be an auction, and he had purchased that bar at one time. Uh, and so it, it was cut up to fit the space they had. It wasn't the long, beautiful thing that was in the brewery, but I managed to buy that. And then I had a plan to do a... Uh, a brew pub. It wasn't a well thought out plan. And the family was like, why do you want to do that again? We just, you know, we just suffered terribly. Um, so anyway, I ended up selling it to the um, Cliff Breakers Resort in Rockford, a guy there, Jim Vitale. As I mentioned, when you were growing up, your grandfather was the general manager, your father was the master brewer. Did you spend time down there? Oh, yeah, a lot of time. Uh, the only work I ever did was shoveling coal into the boiler, and I got a picture of it, but first rung in the ladder, you know. Was that legal? I can remember, I can remember all the rooms, Stu, and one was the machine room where they had these big generators and uh, these ammonia compressors that you might have seen in the book with a big flywheel that weighs several tons and noisy, noisy room and hot. You know, that was quite interesting. Was it legal for 14-year-old boys to be shoveling coal? <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. I mean, there was a union brewery, too. So, you know, it's just like, I don't know if I actually put it in the boiler, but I was loading the shovel. <laughs> yeah. well, I, actually, let's, let's talk about the workforce. What was the biggest that the workforce ever got to? Uh, I'd say... Excluding the Pepsi franchise right across the street, I'd say 50, 60 people. And they did all their truck driving, all their distribution. They didn't have too many wholesalers. And I think it was Madison's only union brewery. Yeah. Yes, it was. 
and, and how how were the labor relations? Well, they were fine. The only thing I uh, picked up as being negative was, you know, Grandpa was a bossy six foot four German and loud voice, and he wouldn't allow a coffee machine put in the brewery. But I really, I just think everybody loved working there. And I can remember going to uh, flag football games over in Olin Park, the brewery picnic, and they were wonderful, you know. No strikes, no labor, no labor stoppages, no strikes. No, no. When the brewery closed, um, well, when beer became illegal in Prohibition, everybody got a $50 war bond. And when the brewery closed, nobody was let go. They all went to work with the Pepsi plant. To have gotten through the late 1930s without a strike was pretty impressive. I mean, everyone went on strike, you know. Burgess and Rayovac, uh, the, the workers at the Park Hotel, the laundry workers, everyone went on strike in 38 and 39. So for, for I, I do know there was a strike in, in the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah. And uh, so Farbach was supplying beer to Milwaukee for a while. I don't know the years, though. That must have been a, a sense of, of sweet commandments that Madison could sell beer to Milwaukee. You bet. You bet. What a hoot. I mean, when they started out, did they think, hey, we're only 70 miles from the beer brewing cap? Wasn't that a daunting concept? Yeah, there was respect for community breweries, though, and up until one big bad event happened uh, that made 18 breweries closed. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of respect for, um, you know, so the Paps folks had salespeople and they'd come in and try to place their beer in Madison. And it was a premium beer, 15 cents a bottle. Well, Fowerbach or Potosi or New Berlin or any of those other beers were 10 cents a bottle. And they had a real loyal following. So um, there was respect. And, um, it, but again, it was, you had to work hard to place your beer. Let's go, go back in history a little bit. You touched on this briefly, but Talk a little bit more about how the advent of electricity affected the brewery. Well, you can imagine this castle um, up until the utilities came through, like city water lines and electricity and telephones right around 1890s um, and railroads and all those advances that happened in the last 40 years of the 19th century. They were using kerosene to, for lights and for heat. Um, they became a steam brewery at some point uh, with the advent of uh, natural gas that they could get from MG&E, which had a different name at the time, and it was right on the lake at the time. But um, yeah, that was that was huge. And the, so it signaled the end of the need for horsepower, true horses. Um, even delivering beer when you could get a nice truck. What did the horses do besides delivering things? What what, what mechanical use did the did you did they make of the horses to actually operate the brewery? Well, I don't think they were in an assembly line, if you know what I mean, like that. But they would haul ice blocks in the winter, uh, anything that needed more than a couple guys could handle. I don't think they ever were um, involved in lifting malt bags up to the fourth floor, uh, but it's possible they were, you know, I don't have information on that. It was really tough for Germans in America during World War I, even in a heavily German state like Wisconsin. In Madison, the German-American bank became the American Exchange Bank. They stopped teaching and even uh, reading German authors in school. Did any of that affect the brewery either as a business or the family on a personal basis? Every child, pretty much all male children, family of six, family of five, my family, family of five, um, everyone enlisted. And so if you can think that first family of six spread out to be 25 grandchildren turned out to be 60 great-grandchildren, uh, very loyal, flag-waving Americans. 
but but did they experience any prejudice against either the company or themselves because they were German? I mean, they, I mean, there's a great deal of anti-German sentiment at the during the war. I suppose, but um, I would say overall, nothing to frighten anyone or put them in harm's way. It's uh, like Grandpa would say, "Don't let the bastards get you down." Would your grandpa actually say that? Actually yeah, say he had that? a sign in his <laughs> office. <laughs> when were you first aware of your family's legacy? Well, right away, you know, as soon as I could think, and I can't remember when that was. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't know if my images in my brain are actual from pictures or actual real life experiences anymore. But uh, that's what happens when you look at all these photo archives all the time. Yeah. But sure, we there was a cottage uh, at the end of Sherman Avenue, there were 2000 acres that the brewery and the family owned, which is now the park out there. And we would always that's where they had the beer parties, they had a big beer tent and beer and T-bones and some of that's written in the in the book. Uh, but we would go, we would participate. And then if you look at the back cover of my book, there's a picture of me at age two carrying a beer bottle in front of five empty beer kegs. That my mother did that, by the way. <laughs> 2,000 acres? Your family had 2,000 acres? At yeah. the end of how, how far out Sherman? Right at the end, right where the park is at the end there and the Indian mound on the river and... Wow. The Johnson family that um, had the plow business on East Wash, they had one right next door. Yeah, but a lot of it was swampy. And uh, the Havy family had a farm out there right at the end of the road. Once I was walking and I, I saw a tree fell over and on underneath that tree was railroad ties one after another that was an original roadway going out before the gravel road. Um, but you know, we did a lot of fun stuff out there as kids, including uh, duck hunt, learn how to learn how to shoot, picnicy stuff. Yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. If the company had still been a going concern when you were and when you became an adult, would you have been interested in being closely involved? Um. Yeah, I'd, I'm not clear on that one. Uh, it was such a spread. Like my best friend Mike says, 40 years is a long-term plan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 1960 to 2000 when we brought some beer out. Uh, I kind of doubt it. You know, the uh, being a brewmaster is, is a hard job. Um, all the other labor is pretty much technical or manual. and Or if you're in the sales end, that's pretty hard, long hours. Um, no, you know, possibly like my great uncle Louie, the medical doctor who ran the place the last year, that would have been interesting to be a board member and but to have another career that's like I did. Speaking of, of your great uncle Louie, it was your father's uncle who made and implemented the decision to close the brewery and where your father was the brewmaster. Heir apparent, right? Heir apparent <laughs> and the master brewer. Did that cause some stress between the families? Uh, years of stress. And I didn't really want to ask questions about it and they didn't really want to talk about it. But I have a lot of respect for Dr. Louie. He had a fabulous career. Went to New York University. He started the residency program at St. Mary's. He was the Dane County Public Health Officer. Uh, and uh, I remember him. He was just a jokester. But the finances, I happen to have all the corporate records. And in there are some business income statements. In the last year, they lost an equivalent of a million and a half dollars. And uh, many breweries are in the same boat. So a lot of them closed in the 60s. Um, not, not to name, to blame, but 
at the time Schlitz brought out Old Milwaukee and they sold a case for a dollar eighty. We had consultants in, um, and I've seen the data that showed that they Farbach couldn't make anything for less than two fifty a case, so they couldn't compete. You know, they were losing placements in the city and tap lines, and even though the Pepsi was doing marvelous. Um, it was, it was something that had to be managed, and my grandfather was not well at the time. So the three brothers, Bill, Carl, and Dr. Louie, two of them, the voting control, were uh, lawyers who were appointed in charge of those estates and had the voting rights, actually. So it was pretty easy for them to shut it down. But I think it was a wise decision. You know, the brewery was really landlocked. Uh, exactly half a mile away from the capital, and pretty fortunate that they were <laughs> not in some of those dry votes that happened before prohibition. You know, it happened seven times the city voted on no alcohol in certain zones. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was a beautiful place and 100 years of fabulous stuff, but where could you go with it? You'd have to build a building somewhere else. So so it was the kind of decision that would be painful, but someone who is um, a scientist like Dr. Louie or a lawyer could look at the, the balance sheet and say, it's hard, but it, we have to do it. Yeah. And it was quick. And they stopped selling beer one day, July 1st, uh, 1966, closed the doors. No big run up in the paper. At that time, Stu, there were a number of problems, the health of my grandpa, the fighting with the city on the Cherokee property that ended up being, uh, I don't know what you call it, eminent domain or condemned or whatever, but the city basically took it and paid us what they thought it was worth. And uh, that happened in that same year. Um, this is so, land that's now part of Cherokee Marsh? Yeah. Yeah. Tough times for the family. And my dad tried to get a group with his older brother, John, and my grandpa, Ken Barnes, uh, who was self-made millionaire too, to take over the Pepsi part of the business. And the board declined uh, to, to vote yes on that. And so our family moved out of town right away. Did you stick around? Were you here to see the building come down? No, as I said, it was like, too painful. Little kids don't need to see that. Wow. Yeah. Did no final visits, no look around for photos oh, and memories? Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the um, uh, five kids of Carl had a day in there. They could go grab something that they, you know, we, we've all spent years trying to figure out why we have a hundred beer boxes in our attic. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where did you go when you left Madison? Well, my father meant, moved us to Rockford where he became a Coca-Cola plant manager. And uh, then it was time for me to go to college. So I wasn't, didn't spending much time in that, in that city. But um, after when summers came along in, in school, I was back here in Madison. I was never really separated from Madison mentally. Yeah. So, and then grad school here uh, and then out East for work. Yeah. Do you particularly like beer? Yeah. <laughs> beer is good. I love beer. I can drink anything from hams to uh, all the great stuff that craft brewers make. I hate to say this. I've I've identified as a Wisconsinite for 50 years, and my favorite beer is still vodka. <laughs> well, now that's one thing. The way I drink beer, I've I've decided over the years, and I never really started drinking cocktails or booze. And I think that's been a good thing for me. I probably drink it too fast. Where was the strangest or most unexpected place that somebody met you and asked if you were related to the brewing company too many to pick one out Stu. i uh we 
you know, we, I'm not wearing it today. I'm wearing the Friends of Pool 9 hat, which is my cabin's right on Highway 35 here, right on Pool 9. It's beautiful. Um, but uh, over the years, we sold T-shirts ah. and hats, and they've been all around the world. We've got some friends who are world travelers. Uh, and so they send me photos of Auerbach beer hats and from Chile or wherever. You alluded to this briefly a little bit, a little bit earlier. You and your brothers and a couple of cousins and even your wife were involved in bringing the beer back in 2004. You did pretty well for a time. Talk us through that whole experience. Well, the good parts of that were getting to know all the craft brewers and learning the business um, and uh, marketing the beer. It, it was a seven-day deal, though. So my regular job, at that time, I was self-employed consultant. So I could do my work from pretty much anywhere. But uh, weekends were beer beer events, you know. And, of course, you had to try to place your beer in bars and fight for real estate on the tap lines, just like all the other sales guys do. Um, and you had to show up as like, hey, this is a kid from hometown here, and you should put his beer on. It's really good. Well, we had a contract to have the beer made with a small firm in the area that eventually got sued. Um, the way the laws work, you need three levels to, to sell beer. You need the brewer, the wholesaler, and the retailer, state law. Um, so anyway, to resolve issues between the brewers and the wholesalers, it's called arbitration. And my contract brewer lost the arbitration case with a big distributor that we were using in Dane County. And then it just did not, it wasn't fun anymore. We had three beers in 22 counties and, uh, you know, with five of us working on it, we had beer in Chicago, not much, but right down where the, the uh, Navy Bean is on Michigan Avenue, right at that little restaurant, and a friend of ours. And um, it just wasn't fun. So, uh, and we were the fourth leg of that stool, that three-tier system. We were the fourth leg, um, the marketing, if you will. It was hard to get any dimes out of that deal. What was the... What had been your plan going in? What, what did you think you'd be able to attain? How detailed a business plan and all that did you, did you have going in? Well, we did a business plan. Uh, one of my partners worked for a big accounting firm in the area, so he knew all about structuring business plans like that. We had a, a pretty good understanding of the beer cost, and then what the uh, retailing cost would be and how what we'd have to price it at to make a dollar. How much would we make on a keg? How much would we make on a case? And we were just going to see how it went. Um, so nobody wanted to invest a huge amount of money for a building and that type of thing. We were just going to collect royalties as the fourth leg on the stool and then what we talked about. Um, so with three beers in 22 counties, I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty darn good. Um, uh, well, we weren't ever thinking about a building. We never got that big. And you, you can see today, a lot of these smaller craft brewers are, are struggling, but they, they have a facility and that's the highest profit in the beer market is when you pass a pint of beer across your brew pub bar to a customer. You charge seven dollars, and it costs you uh, maybe a dollar fifty from the wholesaler. But you've got to staff it, and none of us wanted to do that. No brew pubs, no breweries. Were you essentially licensing the Farback name? Is that what the essentially involved? Yeah, it's yes, but we we had this marketing obligation, so we were part of it. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, the labels had to be properly identified as to who brewed and bottled and. Uh, it had to be more or less what they call a fanciful name added to a beer label. So it's as if um, you got two people selling this beer. 
in a way. Yeah. The brewer and the family that had the original recipe. <laughs> There's detailed stuff in this book about how you actually brew beer, how the formulas and the malt yeah. and the hops. And the, did you know all that or did you have to learn that at some point, either when you were involved in your own brewery or to write the book? It's something I learned over the years. It doesn't take that long, really. I had all my dad's log books, which um, you'll see some charts in there that list a brew on a given day and how many pounds of barley and how many pounds of um, hops and temperatures that they used. And um, the brew house notes that he had also shared with me time and temperature stuff and the mash tun, lauder tun, kettle, um, bright tank, adding the CO2, what pressures do you put in the kegs and the bottles? So I think uh, I had a really good understanding of that. It, when you talk to these home brewers, you got to have your act together because they know what they're talking about. So yeah, it's kind of made me uh, not a, being a practical brewer where I'm actually making the beer, but I could talk about it with anybody. Were you brewing from old Fowerback recipes? You said you had three no. beers. What, what, what beers were you brewing? Uh, I always say the beer is not the important thing. Anybody can make a good beer. If you make a really good beer, it could be the important thing. But uh, the way you get the barley now, it's much different than before. Originally, the brewers had to malt the barley. And so they'd roast it to whatever darkness or bitterness they needed. Now you just buy it from Brees Malt or one of the other malting companies. You dump the bag into the vessel. So um, you pretty much, it's cookbook now, you pretty much use a computer actually to give you all the answers on volume and time and um, what the key ratios are gonna be like alcohol and sugar level and all. If having the recipe is not the key to um, being successful and the ingredients that go into the come in a different way. So you're kind of forced to do it in a different way. Were there times during this period that you wish you could have talked to your father, the master brewer or your grandpa, Carl H and, and say, what do I do now? Absolutely, but uh, not so much from um, what we were up to. That was pretty straightforward, but learning what he had to do to make things work and the fact that he died when he was 52. So I'm like in my 20s. So I missed most of my dad and that whole brewery connection. As I said, with the 40-year span from when we started to do something and felt like the family didn't mind if we tried to do something, he was already long gone. So I was just missing your dad more than anything. Were there people in the family who, who didn't approve of what you were doing to bring a, bring a beer back? Yeah. I would say my mother and my grandmother uh, were the two. And I would listen to them more than anybody anyway. Uh, so I took that to heart. What were they concerned about? Well, my grandmother wasn't um, a bar person or a drinker. Um, my mother went through the pain of all that. And, you know, it was pretty terrible on our family. So um, stay away from that. Don't try to do that. Why do you want to do that? That was the kind of conversation. Did your grandmother know who she was marrying? If she, weren't, she wasn't a beer or a bar. Did she know she was marrying into a great brewery family? Now, this is interesting. So I'm talking about Margaret Barnes, oh, my okay. mother's mother. Your mother's mother, and okay. She's a fabulous woman who lived to be 98. She spoke three languages. She taught Sunday school to little Hispanic kids down in wintertime and uh, played the organ at the church, a Norwegian lady from Mount Horeb. Uh, once in a while, she'd have a half a beer if she had an upset stomach, but that's who I was talking about. Um, but you mentioned, did, did they know they were marrying into a brewing family? The, um, the grandfathers 
no. So my my dad's father knew my mother's grandfather was a Methodist minister. And there's a chapter in the book about Roscoe and Annie Barnes, Methodist ministers, uh, leaders of the dry movement. And it's just fabulous. I got his whole book from um, 1897 to 1946. It's a, it's a ledger with stories. And his two favorite days uh, on the planet, he said, were uh, one was the end of World War One. And that was 1918. And two was illegal beer, 1918. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they never knew my mom and dad got married. They knew they were dating because they were prom king and queen at uh, Madison High. Uh, but Roscoe died before the wedding. Well, we, we saved him from, from the heartbreak or, or the anger. And, and that is I, just... <laughs> Sorry, I keep threatening my wife, Maggie, that I'm, I got an extra spot right next to Roscoe over in Roseland. <laughs> and, 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 and that is just one of many delightful stories you can read about in Fowerback Brewing Company, Madison, Wisconsin, 1848 to 1967. Where can people in Madison get the book? Well, uh, it's pretty limited. Basically, my website, fowerbachbrewery.com. Um, that's the best way to get it. And right now we're having a holiday sale. We're doing um, uh, some percentages off for individual books. And I, I mail them out the same day I get orders. So you could get them in time for a gift to somebody. Uh, or uh, we've now just started a three-pack. Uh, we're going to see if people like that idea. See, if only red dot potato chips were still around, you could throw in a bag of red dot as a, pre as oh a, as a bonus. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that is all the time we have. Again, the book is Fowerback Brewing Company, Madison, Wisconsin, 1848 to 1967. As this is a five Monday month, I get to come back next week for another very Madison centric show with WORT's own Frank Emsbach for a conversation about his new memoir, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shali Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitin. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio. Community radio.